0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton
1: Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey in this hour with two-thirds of my colleagues, three-quarters of the Wharton Moneyball crew. Audie Weiner is here dialing in from his house. He's been from the office lately turning into a slacker like the rest of us, calling it from myself, Shane from the usual home office, me from Midwest America, Eric Bradlow is out and about this week, he'll be back, we are recording on Monday afternoon, we're going a day before July 4th in honor of the national holiday, our show will go up on Wednesday morning on SiriusXM. XM, will be replayed a few times over the course of the week, and we will of course get the podcast up on Wednesday as well. Gentlemen, good to see you. I believe I was away last week. It's been a little while. We're doing Zoom as we typically do these days. We've got a lot of baseball to talk about. Um, Maybe before we dive into baseball, we can collect a few miscellaneous topics. I think we've all got a little something we're curious about. Adi, it's been a while since we've heard swimming from Adi, but Adi's got some swimming observations for us. Odd.
0: I do, uh, mostly because uh, my back problems have, have caused me to head back to the pool. So I'm starting to pay more attention to swimming. And uh, two things of note, Katie Ledecky, who's probably you know the un- un- most convincingly unbeatable uh, female swimmer uh, in the world, uh, lost in the American Championships at, in the 200, which is probably her weakest event, to a 16-year-old.
1: She's, yeah, she's more of a long distance, distance 800
0: right? And 1500. Um, okay, but you know, and a two hundred is close to a sprint. It's not a super. It's not a fifty or hundred, but it's a two hundred, mid mid sprintish. And but she lost to a sixteen year old. And when that happens, mm. I always find wow. That reminds us that there are sports where age is actually you can actually compete at the national level. And 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 on Uh-oh. the men's side, a sixteen year old beat one of Phelps' old records for the best time ever by a sixteen year old, which oh, is my. remarkable. You know, I watched the watch the the, the the tape and. These 16 year olds are just a lot smaller than the than the full grown men and yet they're just unbelievably fast and you got to wonder you know what's going on flexibility strength well just, yeah i
2: mean uh, it's uh, gymnastics you're washed by 16 right
0: yeah well that's but that that's <laughs> so. such a for for women's gymnastics that's such a size oriented and flexibility oriented this is like the men's butterfly i mean this is like the big men event But it is 200 oh it you mean 30.
2: it was a men's event or a women's event oh, no so 16-year-olds. there's two
0: 16 year olds uh, claire Weinstein uh, beat uh, katie Ledecky. and okay this, Tom beat uh, Phelps' old record. M- means, I think, you know, interesting. It's, it's it's a long ways from the Olympics, and we'll pay attention to it again, but I just thought we'd throw it out.
1: That is fun. It, I, my memory, I, I could have this wrong, and it's been a while, and I don't follow swimming closely, but my memory is that Labrecki kind of burst onto the scene at an Olympics as a 15- or 16-year-old yeah. kid, and she crushed some grand dame of British swimming in, the, in yeah. some long-distance race. And there was this little kid against this grand dame, and just kept on, like, you suddenly, like, "Oh my God, what's going on here? Do I have that right?"
0: You do. You usually see that in the long-distance races, where where size isn't the dominant predictor of okay. winning, okay. and okay. when the youngsters who seem to have sort of enormous amount of stamina per per unit power, I think is potentially the advantage that a, a younger person has. They're not as strong, but they tend to have a, a lot see. more stamina per unit of power. I'm just okay. making this up. Maybe it's something. Yeah, you're yeah,
1: to make, yeah, make, yeah. I like it. All right. Well, thanks, Ed. Remind us, where are we in the Olympic cycle? Don't we have some Olympics coming up sometime soon? Or do I have a
0: delay from, remember, the 2020 was delayed to 2021. So is Paris going to be back on track 2024? That'll be next summer.
1: I I think so. I think that's exactly right. So we're not that far away from it. Okay. Okay. so another question, it was this this sounds like a Bradlow question, but maybe he dropped it in here before he went away, wherever he is today. The probability that Women Yama is actually the best player in the draft. So this is the NBA draft. Was it last week? We've known for a long time he'd go number one to San Antonio since San Antonio won the lottery, you know, six weeks or so ago. But the thing, the reason this is such so, such an interesting question is because people talk about him as a generational talent there are those who believe he's the best prospect since lebron james so you know but those of us who are like well there's so much uncertainty in the draft yeah any, any given year what's the base rate how many,
2: how many best since lebron james prospects have we had over the last say 15 years
1: <laughs> i don't think i mean, I, mean I know they don't anyway. do it but
2: it's not like one a year i realize that the hype here is more like let's well but, bad, so, I, I think,
1: just... think when Shane, I think when you can say it in abstract terms like generational talent, you can see, you yeah, see, no, gener- you people talk about generational talents every no, and three I mean, four the, years. The, the correspondingly really-
2: version of my question is, how many generational talents do we have? That's right. Generation? That's right.
1: But this is uh, you know the concreteness of the LeBron comparison, I think, mm-hmm. is a higher standard. And yeah. so it doesn't get thrown around that loosely. But what's interesting here is that in general, it's helpful for us to remember even the best prospect in the draft is rarely ultimately. The best player in the NFL. This is wildly true. In yeah. the NBA draft, is more diagnostic. But so we, we we would kind of generally preach. Well, you know, number one pick, not necessarily the number one player. But when you get a guy that's supposed to be that much better, yeah. it makes the question a little more interesting. So I'm curious, what you guys, as as statisticians, and, and you know, we, you're not looking at data, and you're an empirical guy So what what you'd first do is you'd go to data. In the absence of data, what would be your guess? at what the probability is that women Yama is actually long-term by some agreed upon measure, the best player in this draft.
0: All right. Can I jump in here? Uh, I'm gonna I, say,
1: let's, let, let's just note that there are 64 players or well, I say 64 two two rounds of presumed 32. No, it's 30, two rounds of 30 picks. So presumably 60 players. Adi. All
0: right. Well, so my base rate, if I didn't know who this just a randomly chosen year, I'd probably yeah, say right. unlikely 10% chance where do you come up
1: with that how do you come up
0: uh, I just look just look at you know great players A fairly small fraction were number one picks in their draft okay. so just look okay. at great players and you are seeing um that they weren't mostly weren't number one so i think that's a pretty good base rate i say maybe some around 10 to 15% of if you look at greats now there's some every now and then you get in a single draft two two all time greats that does happen but that's a, a you know a rare event so I'm, that would be my base rate now the next thing i would but this is not an ordinary uh first round so hold, on, hold on
1: before you right. before you go any further let me and shane debate your base rate or not for me it feels a little low for yeah basketball for, for basketball uh, now we're just we're, we're acknowledging we're just doing this off a of field because this is obviously an empirical question but i would guess it would be north of that but maybe not as high as 20. 20. yeah so
2: i mean what well, the way i'm thinking about right now is like how often has it been that the best player in a uh, in a draft is out of the top 10 i think that's pretty rare too so if we sort of say that, like, yes, say, yes, eighty to ninety percent right. chance that one of the top ten players, which means you know the number of drafts doesn't actually really matter, uh, or the number of draft uh, rounds doesn't really matter to the calculation. That's right. 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 right, um, right. You know, if if it's like eighty percent, say for the top ten players, how do you kind of distribute? You, you know, you then how do you distribute within that. that ten? Do you maybe like do you do probably do want to do more than half of the first five. You start segmenting it down, and I still do that. Nice, think, nice, nice. I I think I would probably more be more like in the 25%, a third range for the top number one pick being the top player of the draft. No, I, I'm not sure. It's getting
1: said. up there. That's getting up there. I'm between Yeah, now that that I and say pro- maybe
2: more like 20, 20, 25.
1: Okay, I'm going to go 15 or so. But now we're just yeah. getting base rates, and we, and we want to permute that this year because – this guy's supposed to be better than the typical first round pick. So what are you going to do with that information, Adi?
0: Okay. So that's a good one because that means um, he's better than, or worse than the average first round first, first pick. And I would say, well, I mean, I don't, I don't follow basketball that closely. He does seem to me with the hype, that he's better, certainly better than average. Is he better than, is he a lot better than average um, who made an enormous hype? Uh, uh, Zion Williamson, wasn't he? a Superstar mm-hmm. draft pick um obviously pretty good um See, back, Audi,
1: but, the, agri- but zion is an interesting important consideration because injuries are probably going to keep yeah and i mean again it, so you're me going mean, to deflate anybody's chances just by the risk of injury
2: to the extent like yeah i i guess as a follow-up are we kind of you know are this probability, would this be evaluated after like a 10 or 15 year period? Like what would you decide yeah, 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 the best yeah, yeah, plan the career, okay. career. Yeah, so it is a career measure, then yeah, you've yeah. got to kind of factor an injury there, and that Shit. probably brings it down quite a bit.
1: Yeah. So what are you going to go up? You're going to go base rate 10 plus what, Adi?
0: Okay, so I would probably at least, well, remember, I went with a small base rate, and you probably convinced me that it's probably too low. Um, I would say he's probably closer to 40 or 50%. Uh, oh, my gosh. Without looking at the, anybody else, right? Um, Dude,
1: wow. You think that's too y'all high? Me, yeah, y'all had me. So I'm starting at a slightly higher base rate than you, 15% or so, maybe 20. And I'm going to go many, up to 25.
0: Oh, wow, very little. Do you, yeah. Are you biased by the rest of the people in the draft that you might know of? That no, higher-
1: I'm not paying attention to anything. And I'm ignoring all the, all the chats that Matt Dats is feeding us. We're like, we don't want to do this without you. Yeah, I don't,
2: I don't know if uh, – um, I don't know if this makes it my, I mean, this makes my opinion less valuable, but I'll give it anyway. You know, as somebody who very casually follows basketball, definitely the least of the four major sports I've always been, I've been kind of surprised like with, and I've always been that kind of casual level fan, Kobe, LeBron, Durant, all these guys came along and I was hearing about him a ton. This guy, again, I keep getting surprised that everybody's talking about this one, but Yaba as, 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 this level. I think that I think
1: that that's, that's more, more on of you. Yeah, that's more on you. I'm going one third, fellas, one third. And and the point of the exercise, I think, is that given his hype, you would intuitively expect it to be higher than that. But the nature of the uncertainty is such that you got to kind of regress down and I'm going to yeah. land at, I'm going to land at one third.
0: All right, now how about uh how would you change it now that we know who's in it? Do neither none of us know in it anyway? No, way? I know no, nah,
1: no, it doesn't matter. We're just we're yeah. statisticians, okay, man. How
0: about okay, now how do you how do you change given all the stuff that uh Maddie that's is pumping in our in our in our feed? I'm I'm ignoring it. We don't have time so to process it, it right? <laughs> yeah, but
1: we did we did ask you, but he did give us the the right thing up front because Adi's like Audi started out saying, look at the great players, how many were number ones. The right question is, look at the number ones, how many were great players. And so the first thing that Matt fed us was all the number ones. And that gives you the empirical, if you, you can kind of suss it out as the yeah. empirical base rate, not the answer, but the empirical base rate.
0: Yeah, and I looked at him, and I'm again, I'm not a, not a not such an obvious uh, knowledgeable person of all the names, but I look at the number ones, and I'm like, okay, really? And then he starts feeding me all the people that are great by year, and those I all know. <laughs> and, and so Anthony Davis was number one in back in 2000. So
1: your so your 10 so may not be may, not, it be may awful. not be that
0: Far, I mean, you start looking at Doncic and Tatum, O'Neal, and and Jamal and Moran. I mean, these are great players,
2: right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, one more random topic before we slip into baseball. What about the, um, what do we got here? The, the, Oh, it's the NHL. Tell us about this trophy. I'm intrigued. Shane throws this in here. The the
2: Selkie trophy.
1: Yeah. So Patrice Bergeron wins this thing for the sixth time, which is a big deal, but this thing is what intrigues me. They have a trophy for the best defensive forward.
2: Yeah. It's a great award. Yeah. No,
1: and I mean, I think,
2: I I think it's kind of, you know, under recognition that those, you know, under certainly historically and even in current day kind of statistical collecting, the kind of defensive, you know, prowess of of forwards is relatively under tabulated, underrated, under acknowledged. And so it's kind of nice that they have this award. Four, four of four players and they've been had it since like the late 70s or so. Patrice okay. Bergeron is very unique in that in just terms of you know just kind of how exemplary he's been his entire career as a defensive forward. I think this is his sixth time winning it. Um and he's been top five you know, this is kind of like it, it, This is kind of like the MVP in baseball where the base, the hockey writers vote on it. And, you know, even if you don't win, having a top five finish is kind of, you know, still laudable. He's been top five, I think, the last 15 years. <laughs> wow. For 14 years. Hopefully, 14 years. Shane,
1: Shane tell, tell us what a forward does in hockey to distinguish himself as the best defensive forward.
2: Come back on a back, back checking. Back checking. Back checking. Penal- okay. I don't actually know how they factored in, but penalty killing also, obviously, is oh. a way in which forwards, you know, kind of play a very important defensive role. Oh, um, that makes sense, you know.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um I wonder why and you know, the I wonder what that would look like analytically. Yeah, unit. no, I mean, the penalty, it's a the penalty kill unit in particular, because you want what you typically have is a bunch of sharpshooters in there, right? Because you're trying to, oh, penalty kill. Yeah, what are the, how do you even, how do you even staff the penalty killing unit?
2: Well, I, again, yeah, I mean, typically, I mean, your best defenseman typically, unless they're, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's defensemen that are kind of specifically good in penalty cases, but your best defenseman, and then again, sort of, you know,
1: you put one forward in there? Is it two forwards? No, It's, two, is it,
2: it's two forwards. It's two and two,
1: and two and
2: two. I mean, okay. you know, yeah. I mean, one of them's usually like a center or something like that. Um, and just for face-offs, because that's really important on a penalty kill as well. And yeah, I mean it's it's basically again, it's it's I mean, you asked the right question, but which is you know, this is voted on by hockey writers who presumably watch the games and are you know making wise decisions. But if you were to kind of do this anal- analytically, or if you were yeah, trying to right. identify somebody who's doing good a good job that isn't a, kind of an obvious eye test type of situation right i i wonder you know i mean you yeah, know you because can now, now i'm skeptical
1: like, Shane, now i'm saying they just no one knows how to give this award so they just keep on giving it to Bergeron out of inertia <laughs> i want to know analytically i want them to surface yeah. somebody analytically who they're not appreciating there's the question for the hockey yeah. analysts in our community yeah. Yeah. Who should be, if you just use the numbers to identify the best defensive forward, who is underappreciated out there just by the numbers? Yeah. Um,
2: that would be because God bless Patrice
1: Bergeron, but now, I'm, now <laughs> I think it's inertia because no one knows what they all are supposed to be. I'm joking, hockey fans, I'm joking. Okay, baseball, baseball, we've got some things. But first, we have to start with, my God, the perfect game. Not only a perfect game, but from a Yankee, for God's sake. So, And not only a perfect game from a Yankee, but a guy who'd just been like... Jeer. Usually people. sucks. Yeah. yeah. So how does yeah. this work? Does yeah. it diminish? Does it diminish the accomplishment? I can't help but feel like the accomplishments diminished. It was against the A's, right? Adi, defend your pitcher.
0: Okay, well, a couple of things. Yes, it diminishes the accomplishment slightly. The A's are bad. But and if you know if it's not Don Larson doing it in the World Series, right? Okay, that's 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 certainly a little bit different. But baseball is a game where even the worst team has a solid chance of winning a game. Absolute worst against, I mean, the biggest odds tend to go 65, 35. So they are professional hitters. Just throw that out there. Um, And so you got to value the accomplishment. The thing about Herman, which is really interesting. Hold on, Adi, on
1: on that point, I would love to know from the forecasters, sim people, the probability of a perfect game versus the average team, a good team, and the worst team just on.
2: And I think it's, I mean, I think honestly, that's even overthinking it. It's so lucky. It's so luck based. What you're really doing a perfect game is if you, if you like took an entire pitcher's career of outs and non-outs, you know, what's the chance of having 27 in a row? It's really small. It's you know really, and, I, and I, really it's really small it's only happened what 20 this is the 24th time it's happened in all time in baseball? Uh, 23rd it's incredibly small just do the yeah. basic math i mean even even the even a a,
0: a typical player has an on base percentage you can go to average of around what 0.35 yeah. maybe or 0.345 just raise that to the 27th power you get yeah. a pretty damn small number it's really really, or
2: it's it's a relative okay. i think it's relative in magnitude to like the uh hitting for the cycle and again that's one where we all think oh well that's obviously that's more just, common what are the chances that you'd happen to do those four things yeah. all in the same game cycle is
1: way more okay common. But, but, but okay, y'all are raising another issue though my i think something i've learned from maybe y'all over time we talk about we talk about the fact that intra player perf- variance doesn't get enough attention we spend so much time distinguishing players from one another and categorizing players we we neglect the fact that there's a lot of variation within a player and so okay if we attend to that then all the little glib things y'all just said don't apply because all these outs yeah. aren't independent a guy a pitcher on any given night is a different guy than he was five nights before in his previous start and yeah no like, what i, I
0: get Oh, go ahead audience. this actually we actually had the uh, on my money, morton moneyball academy we had some guest speakers we had one of the uh, heads of the analytic department at the cincinnati reds came to talk to the student and we actually asked them about that particular question are starting pitchers like the most variable position in baseball and the answer is yes and the real question is are, how they are the mo- one of the most unbelievably variants compared to any other sport this is a guy is that right? Right? this is a this is a position and I actually have some data on it i put it up in our in our uh, in our in our rundown that if you look at the likelihood of a great game being thrown, you'd think that the great games are dominated by great pitchers. It turns out they're not. And that a really crappy pitcher is only about half as likely to throw a great game as a great pitcher. That's just remarkable. If you go and lit, you know, I go back and list, look at um, the, the best, Quarterback games of all time, and there might you know top fifty of them, and I recognize the quarterbacks in all of them. There's a couple popped in that are just not particularly well known. But if you even look at the perfect game list, you you, you won't recognize half of them. I mean, sure, it's it's such a, you know, but it's. I mean, the
2: football analog would be like you're looking only at the games where like this the quarterback scores over like 550 yards or something like that, and it's like you know, that's going to okay, be much more likely dominated by randomness than, like, actual Well,
1: skill. there's an even bigger reason here because there are 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL and there are 120, 150 um, starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. So even if the crappy, so-called crappy guys are only half as likely to throw a great game as the good guys, there's a lot of them. And so the chances of, you know, one of those guys having a really good night that's exceptional, it starts becoming probable.
2: What, what do you guys, guys like, think is-
0: the ask yourself for quarterbacks. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about great games. What okay, so the number's two to one for 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 uh, starting pitchers. What is it for quarterbacks? I mean, I'm talking it, top to bottom, not not top to the middle, top to bottom.
1: Oh, um four to one.
0: Four to one, you know. Right.
1: I'm right. I'm making it up, but it's a lot different than two to one, but that's, that's one factor. But this other, just the numbers, the numbers, yeah, of course,
2: the numbers, the
0: numbers, parsimonious
1: so, explanation. Imagine if like,
2: you could pitch like that and also maybe break the L record in home runs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I flip it around, Shane. Y'all, y'all said this, this, this somewhere in the rundown is that you what Oh, had 30 home runs in June. And someone says, well, judge had 33. I'm like, okay, this guy hits home runs like judge. Like no, but he, I mean, the whole or... point
2: of that that yeah no I, no I mean it's it takes it's more to show that he's actually on pace that he's on the pace to break Judge's record right now or
1: close yeah, yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, it's it's, more just, to, it's
2: it's yeah it's it's incredible.
1: What's the I I just I just saw um do y'all do y'all read me Robert Caro the the, the documentary yes. on Bob Gottlieb and Robert Caro turn every page mm-hmm. so they show the um they show the interview that um what's his name um oh colin o'brien did with carol and he did it at a synagogue and he uses this phrase is it a yiddish phrase it, it, it's like thanking god for it, it would have been enough if they had just done this what's that phrase adi yes yeah, say it again dayenu dayenu dayenu, dayenu. Would be, that like, would have been enough a- yeah, if you had just written a book on Robert Moses, that would have been, or just one of the four so yeah. far, I mean, that would have been enough. Yeah. Come on, man. You've got enough home runs, to would be judged. That's enough. Dianu Otani, oh, yeah, you know, It would
0: have been enough. It's actually a Hebrew word. Um, uh, oh, okay. it's, yeah, exactly. That would have been enough. I mean, Otani just doing this would have been enough. It's actually very interesting because Otani's been in the league now for a few years, and while he's, he's may have won the war contest at least once, if not more than that, he's never been the leader in anything. He's been, okay. you know, when you add up fifteen and fifteen, you get to be number one. If you're, uh, but he's the best hitter right now, arguably the best hitter. Yeah, right.
1: and that's pretty impressive. <laughs> unbelievable, just absolutely unbelievable. Um, all right, so give us a little bit of a. I know it's not quite off to our break. It is July fourth. It's almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. Give us a little first half rundown, especially on some of these. Um, unexpected teams, Adi, you just mentioned having the Cincinnati or someone from the Cincinnati Reds pitching staff in to talk to the team. I saw him play. I saw Ellie Dela Cruz. I saw him K in the first inning, but it's fun that the Reds are good. The Diamondbacks are good. The Orioles are good. What is your assessment of the league at almost the halfway point?
0: I mean, the assessment is, is that it's almost like a changed league with the new rules, obviously primarily as an entertainment Factor. It's just yeah. so much more fun to watch because it's faster. A great statistic I saw the uh, just this morning communicated to me by my daughter. And let me just point out how amazing that is how that proud I you? something about baseball for my daughter, which that there um fewer than 10% of the games have gone two and three hours or more this year. Mm, and, nice. And that in last year was like 55 percent and it hasn't been anywhere near that in like 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's the fact that no long games are are happening was really the mar- remarkable change. But also the ba- the base stealing and all these teams you mentioned the Reds, the Orioles, um, the Rays, uh, the Arizona, Texas. These teams are young and they're fast and they're taking advantage of the new rules and they're they're almost stealing runs. I've seen at least one. There's been a couple. Just saw one the other day. Steals of home. Now, at the, wow, steals of home. Yeah. I mean, they mm-hmm. always have happened, but. They're, they just appear to me, I mean, people stealing the, a run, essentially, getting on and then running around mm-hmm. the bases. And mm-hmm. it's worth noting
2: mm-hmm. that the Rays, I think, are leading the majors in stolen bases kind of going through our basically at the halfway point. They've got about 100 stolen bases. And I think the Rangers had the most stolen bases last year, and it was only like 128. So we're almost at double the number of stolen bases kind of at least right. at the top end among, among teams that choose to take advantage of it. And it sure, kind of brings up this – Go,
1: ahead, go as, ahead. As as baseball fans and baseball watchers, are y'all enjoying the effect that the stolen base is having on the game? Is it is it adding entertainment value? Are you happy with that much or twice, literally almost twice as many stolen bases?
0: Oh, fantastically
2: happy.
3: Yeah.
2: yeah no, I am
1: too. Why, I mean, I think I think the just because there's more activity.
3: Off.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's more kind of, you know, exciting events. It's like, we like balls in play. We like, you know, we like have, we like field it, you know, if strike, mm-hmm. strikeout, 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 uh, you know, I mean, unless you're a real fan of the pitcher is not is not nearly as compelling, I think just visually.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's
2: really cool. I also like kind of just sort of seeing it as kind of like looking at like which teams are taking advantage, which players are taking advantage. It's interesting to me, like, as we talked about Luis areas last week where he said, you know, yeah. he's, he's still nice. flirting with like 400. And I'm like, oh, so that guy's gone base literally more than anybody else in the first half, and he has three stolen base attempts. Mm-hmm.
0: Which is kind of crazy, you know, because the break-even is around 67%. And yeah, the yeah. So, I mean, like, you know,
2: it's like – 77. Yeah.
0: You know, so what's up with this? You know, there, there probably should be way more stealing. That's the, that's the irony here. They're
1: oh, not, wow. Jeez, really? Okay. So I got one question for y'all. As I look around the standings, one that jumps out to me on the other end – I know a lot of people making a fuss about the Mets, but the Padres, I think, are the ones that yeah. most jumped jump them because they were such presumed contenders in the West. And so, do any insight on what's going on with the Padres? And they spent a lot of they've invested so much in recent years.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I don't really have a gra- a great insight. I mean, they, yeah, they, I mean, they went, they were almost, you know, they went to the NLCS last year and then added pieces, including you know, mm-hmm. the Red Sox shortstop. I'm not happy about that. So, I mean, I'd like to invoke a curse, but I think no. I, I mean, I also think. They could still be there at the end. They're not like, you know, they're not out of it or anything like that. They would be a team I would sort of, you know, I would I would, I would would kind of buy low on them.
1: Okay. Uh, we're out of time for this half, but any one comment on the all-star rosters?
2: Atlanta, Braves. <laughs> Atlanta, Braves. They have like half of, the, half of the NL roster. Atlanta, Braves, and Rangers both have like five or six position players and a couple t- pitchers, and neither of them are top five in payroll.
1: Nice. All right we'd like to see something like that with apologies to you al easters all right guys that's the first half come back we've got a second half Got Jeff Sackman on Wimbledon that tennis tournament that kicked off this week so come back and join us after the break
0: you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio
1: welcome back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Welcome back to 60 Minutes, one hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey in this half hour with Shane Jensen. Audi Weiner has been tripped up by some technical difficulty. He might roll in here in a little bit. If not, he is here in spirit. Eric Bradlow out and about doing Eric things. Also here in spirit. Also in spirit and in actuality, Jeff Sackman is with us today. Coming to us via Zoom as we are to each other and as we do these days. Jeff. Is a, among many other things, a tennis analyst. We've talked with Jeff a number of times over the years, but it's been a while. In fact, I think it may be pre pandemic since we've talked to Jeff and we've missed him, damn it. We enjoy him immensely. He's one of the best you can read on tennis, in our opinion. And we're good, glad to see you, Jeff. Thanks for making time for us.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Jeff is coming to us from Oslo. He lives there, even though he's a native of the Pacific Northwest in the states he lives there now he is the founder of tennisabstract.com tennisabstract.com you can also find him on twitter i believe under the same handle you find him published in various places many places over the years these days mostly at tennisabstract.com but we strongly urge you to track him down for a deeper look at tennis not just the superficial stuff which can be fun but deeper analytical look at tennis now, Adi he seems to have managed his technical stuff and is flying in here, wearing some Miami Dolphins Aquamarine T-shirt, looking ready to go. Okay, Jeff Sackman, how are you, sir? What is on your mind this week, as probably the most famous of tennis tournaments get underway?
3: Yeah, this is this is the big one. Wimbledon is the is the, the centerpiece of the tennis calendar and has been for over a hundred years. Um, Novak Djokovic is going for history. We're going to see whether whether he can add yet another Grand Slam. We're w- w- looking to see whether Iga Swiatek can figure out how to play on grass and cement her status as the best player in the game. There's, I mean, every Grand Slam. There's there's so many questions, and and this one's no different.
1: Well, I, I you know being forecast people and probability people, I was drawn immediately to the forecasts on your page. You break down both draws, and digging through the men's draw. I see that even though Alcaraz is, I think, the number one seed, Djokovic, you have as twice as likely to take the title. I think it's something like 37 to 18, something like that. Can you talk about what's going into those numbers, how you think about forecasts? How much of that is a draw? Does Alcaraz have a tougher draw? If those guys were head-to-head, what would you put their probabilities at? That kind of thing.
3: Yeah, um, my draws are based on ELO ratings, and I'm sure you and your listeners are pretty conversant in the whole ELO concept. Um, the one tweak or one tweet, major tweak that I have to do for tennis is that players play differently on different surfaces. Uh, so Alcaraz, is he's not a clay court specialist, but he grew up playing on clay courts. He's had his greatest successes so far in his career on clay courts. Djokovic, on the other hand, plays well on every surface, has played very well at Wimbledon in the, in the past. So my ratings take into account both the player's overall performance and their surface specific performance. Alcaraz has very little experience on grass. He did win one of the warm up tournaments, but still, that's nothing compared to what Djokovic has. So the biggest part of that difference, we mentioned, which is absolutely right, I think it's thirty seven percent, eighteen point five. Um, the biggest part of the difference is grass court experience, proven grass court excellence. I think there's a little bit of a draw effect as well, which which can be huge, especially on grass courts, yeah. because. The, the seedings are determined by official overall ranking. So you've got Kasper Rude, our, our hero here in Norway. I think he's the number four seed, the number four player in the world, but he has basically nothing going on on grass. Like he didn't prepare okay. at all. He was okay. hanging out in Norway for the last three weeks since Central <laughs> and Garros. He did win today, but no one's expecting him to go much further. So that's someone who on paper you'd look at and say, Oh, that's a semifinalist, but a tennis person's going to look at that and say <laughs> someone else is going to be in the semifinals. So you'd much rather be on the on the other half from him. But that sort of thing goes right down the draw. I mean, you've got a number thirty who could be a real threat. You've got number twenty nine who's basically never played on a grass court. So with with grass court tennis, it's so rare Sorry. these days. It's um, it's it's kind of like you have to throw away the the top level numbers and you have to dig into okay. what people have actually done on grass courts.
1: Jeff, do the do the tournaments consider uh, surface performance in their seeds,
3: not at all. Wimbledon, not at a zero. Okay, yeah, zero. Wimbledon used to, and that actually was a big controversy maybe thirty years or so ago because all the all this mostly Spanish clay court specialists were getting penalized every year by Wimbledon because I they weren't that. they weren't right. going to play well on grass. Right, yeah. right but they, they hated it. And understandably so, I mean, the seedings are really valuable. So they had a whole fight. Wimbledon made a compromise where they'd take the top 32 players as according to the overall ratings, but then they'd rearrange them if they wanted. So over the years, it it got less and less and less. Then finally a few years ago, they finally gave in and said, you know, okay, we're Wimbledon. We're super important, but whatever. (laughs) We'll, we'll take your ratings, have your official rankings. That's fine.
1: Okay, well, that just introduces additional noise in the or the, a, a important variation in the draws, right? So, it just it, it exacerbates the thing you were talking about before. Shane had a follow up question here, I believe.
2: Yeah, I guess when you're talking about kind of predicting, um, do you think uh, that the kind of like surface differential, differential performance on surface is more important in like the top top, like the top thirty players, and like if, if for example you wanted to predict, say, the the top one hundred players. Would it be easier to kind of do the bo- like that, that 30 to 70 kind of group, not taking into account court, like does the court differential kind of really stand out only once you get to that kind of top 30 in the world level, or when is the, or
3: the sort of surface differential, when does that kind of really make a biggest, the biggest difference? I'm not sure you can really pinpoint a ranking range lately with the, we've been talking big four for the last, you know, 15 years of men's tennis. And those guys, for the most part, they are the big four because they figured out how to play really well on all surfaces. That's unusual. Mm-hmm. I mean, historically, it's unusual. Uh, among other players now, it's unusual. So there have always been players with strong tendencies, and it could be someone like Casper Rude, who's a top five player right now and much, much, much better on clay than he is on grass. But then you could have somebody ranked 50 or 150 or 500 who is fine across the board. I mean, whether it's because of experience or because of their game style, um, it's, it, it's, those are really the factors. And aside from the absolute, like world historical greats, like Djokovic, I mean, you can be a tremendously great hall of fame player and have a very strong surface preference, or mm-hmm. you can have none. So it did. I, I wouldn't want to draw any conclusions like that.
1: Jeff, of course, another unique feature of majors is that they're three of five sets. How does that factor into your simulations and your forecasts? I would think that that would be an important consideration.
3: It is, and it it favors favorites, just kind of a tongue twister. Right. Um, right. I mean, because three out of five is more likely to give you the 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 right, the, the, the correct winner yeah. than two out mm-hmm. of three. I mean, I whenever people are, well, let me start that one over. Um, people often complain when matches go long that we should ditch the best-of-five format because you can have a best-of-five match that goes five, six hours long. And that is that is pretty nuts when you think about it, uh, especially if you're writing for a newspaper on a deadline and you're sitting in a press box until 1.30 in the morning. I can see why right. you would complain about that. Um, but I always like to joke back, like, why don't we just go best-of-17? Just go all out. Let's really figure out who the best player of this match yeah, is. Yeah, right, right. So, so what I do is, with the forecast is I've, I've worked out what that effect is. Uh, I'm I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but if if you have a winner who's like a sixty forty favorite, um, then it might be like sixty six thirty three or sixty six thirty four, I guess, um, because of the best of five. So, I mean, it, yeah, it makes right. it more likely that's, that a, the,
1: substantive, that's a substantive that's a substantive take up. That's interesting. You raise an interesting uh, wrinkle. Or you ask it in a way that takes us to a topic we often talk about, Jeff. has tournament design essentially and there's always this question of exactly what you just post how much trouble do you want to go to to identify the true better player versus how much chance do you want to let influence the outcome and there's it's not zero percent chance. there's people want a certain amount of chance in there. Um, and it seems like they've over the time over time kind of tweaked these rules to get into that sweet spot shame.
2: Yeah, actually, that was uh, just to kind of follow up on what Kate was saying. That was kind of like, I, I, as, a, as a tennis fan, I would like to hear kind of your preference to sort of how much you kind of want, like like a player like No Djokovic should be allowed to dominate if they truly are dominant over the other players. But at the same time, the same dominant player winning every major, maybe as for, you know, is not as exciting. So I don't, how much do you kind of balance sort of surprise uh, versus sort of like, you know, pr-
3: predictability when thinking about uh, a tournament? Well, tennis kind of has it already, um, even even if you're going best of five, because the, the way the scoring system is, matches hinge on pretty small numbers of points. I mean, if Djokovic is dominating, Djokovic is dominating. And I mean, there's no way, no way you can design a reasonable facsimile of tennis that changes that. But most of the time, the winner is winning like 55% of points, maybe 57 or 58. Very rare do they hit 60. Often you have winners who are winning like Fifty point five percent, or even forty nine percent. So it really comes down to who's winning a few points in a tiebreak, who's converting a couple break points versus not doing that, and that's that's true in three out of five, even if it's a little less true than it is in in two out of three. So I'm kind of happy with however it is. Uh, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna digress a little bit here and and say a a. a a related issue is how long players are taking between points these days and matches getting longer and longer and longer. That's the main reason why tournaments are switching to two out of three is back in the day, every single men's tennis match, at least in the back end of a tournament was three out of five. And those matches went like two hours. If a, if a match went two and a half hours, a newspaper report would say, this was a really long match. It lasted two hours and 35 minutes. That was a big deal. Now, two hours and 35 minutes is like, that's table stakes. In best of five set tennis, uh, if if you can bring that back, you can have three out of five. And when you have that, then players are playing faster. They're not focusing so incredibly hard on every single point, and that does in- introduce a little bit of chance back in there too. If you're not if you're not focusing for your absolute strongest serve on every point and so on, so interesting it, to me, the time and the and the, the luck factor are related.
1: Yeah, well, there's a massive uh, article on um, The Athletic this week about the length of tennis matches, and they talked about these factors and a number of other ones, and we will dive into that at some point. But Shane's joking here about wanting a pitch clock. They actually being a baseball guy and seeing the revolutionary effect that the pitch clock has had on baseball this year. They do, in fact, have a clock of some kind in tennis, do they not? It's because of these guys taking all this time between points. Do they just need it to be quicker, Jeff?
3: It, 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 I don't know whether it's the t-shirt I'm wearing, but there's a there's actually a button on my shoulder that's like, press here for rant. And you've just...
1: <laughs> we just hit it? We, we, we dude, The rant, someone cut you off, Jeff. Just as you got ready to rant, you froze. You're going to come back here in just a minute. It's a conspiracy
2: know. on behalf of whoever this rant is going to be against. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Gonna, but... Which I, I think will probably be the tennis version of my, you know, robo-umps rant.
1: So yes, it I'm will be. There. Well, let's hear. <laughs> Adi's, Adi's been dying to get in, and apparently we've been ignoring him. Adi, you want to you want to share your thoughts while we wait to, for Jeff to come back online?
0: Yeah, I, I, although my questions are addressed to him. Um, you know, when you do a lot of modeling of uh, with particularly Elo modeling or any power ranking modeling, typically. You, you're really after the probability that one team beats the other team because that's ultimately what matters. Some sports go for points, right? Uh, because that's, the, that's how you determine, um, you know, in a football match or baseball. Um, but in tennis, you really just want to do a win. But if you can think about it, you can actually break it down by set. And I wonder whether or not the the power ranking for tennis is broken down by set, which then automatically gets the three, to, three out of five kind of built in. Because if it's 0.55, 0.45 on a set, You just you know it's it it it's uh you can calculate what the chances that they'll win best out of five as as opposed to best out of three, or it may be that that's just ridiculous and that there's autocorrelation, strong car uh, correlation within sets, and that a a player who loses one is going to go back and and win the other. There's you know in in set tanking if you get yeah. Early, you'll relax a little bit and have some strength left it's, over to win the next one. So I just wonder what the modelers have to say. I've never done any of this. And, no, uh, and
2: as a model, it's a great, it's a great question because you know, I mean, you could think about this in baseball. Like, at what resolution? In like kind of an adversarial sort of yeah. matchup type sport, at what kind of resolution of that? you know kind of that process do you want to model it you know you know pitcher versus batter too do you want to kind of be doing it at the at-bat level or the pitch by pitch level it's kind of the same thing here do you want to be modeling like you know game by game or is it at the set by set like where's kind of the best kind of level to sort of model at
1: that's a great question and i know where audi was coming from when he first came to it is because as a modeler he didn't want a little fudge factor. As you move from two to two, two out of three to three out of five, he wanted the actual structural model, which makes sense. Just he's like, just put it at the set level and then let it play out, and you can just calculate. But y'all are raising exactly the right questions, like what's the right resolution? We're still waiting for Jeff to come back online, who would have a more informed answer. But my strong sense is that the right resolution is the match, and that there is this correlation between sets, and in particular, this tanking. Tanking, I'm sure, is not the right word, but. Um, where guys at some point will ratchet back.
2: Load management, back. I guess. The management. version of load With, management. Yes,
1: within match load management is exactly what happens. And and guys like, well, we're on lose this set, so I'm gonna save my fuel for the yeah. next set.
0: You know, one thing that's, we could think we could think about is that over 10 years of doing Warden Moneyball, how many words or concepts are new since then? And load management is one of
2: them.
1: <laughs> I never oh, heard that's man. interesting.
2: Well, well, I I was the process already was did, does Dwarven Moneyball predate we, or postdate the, was, the trust we, the process?
1: We, we post it within a few months. We just hit okay. the 10-year anniversary of the process this, okay. this season, I think, and we just hit the nine-year anniversary. So we're kind
2: of moving in parallel with the process. Mm-hmm. And I think doing uh, better
1: than,
2: than the process <laughs> is done, to be honest. That's right? why we
1: don't want too many parallels, Shane. Not too many parallels well, with the process.
2: Well I, mean, well, I mean, we've just sort of – we've maintained that same excellence over all this time, whereas, you know, the actual – Sixers, it's up and yeah. something down
1: more. Something, something like that. This is Wharton Moneyball. This is Q2 of Wharton Moneyball. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Cade Massey in here with Jeff Sackman talking a little bit of tennis analytics. We have Jeff back now having surmounted his technical issues. Jeff, before we get to your rant, we think some tennis authorities are eavesdropping and cut you off because you said you were going to give a rant. But before we give you that, we have a question from Audie, and it goes to the modeling and the short of it is, like, what's the right unit of analysis for evaluating head-to-head strength? And the idea was it sure would be convenient if you could do it at the set um, unit because then, you know, two out of three, three out of five, whatever, you just calculate it. But we have the sense that that there's kind of correlation, there's autocorrelation of correlation between sets. Like, most importantly, there might be some load management of sorts. I, I think, famously, tennis players will – take it easy if they're deeply behind on a set and they just kind of, they save their ammo for the next set. If that's true, then you can't do it on a set by set basis. You got to have kind of a match level unit of analysis. What's your take on that part of it?
3: What I do is at the set level. Um, so oh, you I do, do exactly, at the, I, I oh, do exactly okay. the basic thing you're talking about. So okay. it is, it, it is pretty straightforward in pure math to go from best of three to best of five. What you're saying about load management, is not wrong. Um, and if you go back 30 years, especially, or more than that, then it was really blatant. Like it was, it, it was like okay. to tennis to say, I won the first two sets. I'm a little bit worn out. I'm just going to take it easy. I mean, there were guys uh-huh. famously in the forties and fifties who would do that basically on purpose. They'd win two sets. They'd go all out. Then they just, you know, slowly waltz through the next two lose them and then come back hard in the fifth. Like it didn't uh-huh. tell you anything about their ability level that they went yeah. to five sets. That doesn't happen anymore. People are pretty much playing hard all the time. I see. S- okay. You can see anecdotes to the contrary, but it's not enough to change the the way I would model. It doesn't affect the results that much. Okay, Shane. Just as a quick follow-up to that, the other way you could kind of look at it with inset load management, you can kind of look at
2: like, you know, do we kind of see more six nothing six zero, six, one? Like you'd kind of you'd kind of think you'd see it sort of like, you know, the game results within set, whether or not load management was occurring. Cause if a particular player's, you know stopping you know they're really not trying very hard at like once they're down by two games you're going to get kind of almost more sort of big kind of differentials
3: within set of games than you would expect kind of by chance
2: i don't know if people have
3: looked at that i think the way that coaches coach these days like the conventional wisdom in tennis works against that i think that they're for various reasons they're encouraging players to go close to all out most of the time so if in men's tennis the serve is so dominant most of the time that if if you're losing a set then at the very least you want to keep holding your serve so that you can serve first in the next set so for, 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 for force your opponent to serve it out um even if you probably won't win even if it's Isner serving it out he's definitely going to beat you Um, In women's tennis, it can be so topsy-turvy, even if that's just perception. There's this idea that, okay, I'm down five love, 30 love, but if I just crack a couple return winners here, I'll change the momentum and who knows what could happen. Maybe I'll win the next 12 games on the trot. And Uh I mean, maybe that only happens once or twice a season, but the perception is there that if you keep pushing, you you might crack something open. And that means that they're not trying 100% in every point, but it's it's closer to that than there would be in pretty much any set or really any reasonable way you'd teach tennis if you were doing it with peer analytics. But that that's just the way they think about it.
1: All right, Jeff, we're going to time out here in a second. But before we do, we want to circle back to the rant that you were about to give us before you got cut out. We were talking about the length of these tennis matches. We referred to this athletic article that came out this week. It really sounds um Pretty extensive, how much longer matches are getting. And we talked about the fact they do actually have a shot clock or pitch clock, if you will. But this somehow isn't working. What what are your thoughts on this?
3: Okay. So the serve clock allots 25 seconds between points. And the first problem is that's a long time. I mean, most players did not use 25 seconds between points. So, I mean, you don't save much time if you stick with that in the first place. The main problem is it standardized 25 seconds. So in the old days, it might be an average of 10 or 15 seconds between points, but then you'd have a really long rally. Players would dawdle and they'd go to 40 seconds. So that 40 seconds is cut off, but you don't have to do much math to realize that if you take away 90% 15 seconds and 10% 40 seconds and replace them all with 25 seconds, you've got a longer result. That's the main yeah. problem. So that's, that's the first issue, but the main issue beyond that is the way they actually count the 25 seconds. So the way it works is when the umpire calls the score, that's when the 25 seconds starts. So if you've got a bruising rally and the crowd is up in arms and, and cheering and only when the noise dies down, does the umpire say 30, 15 and start the clock. So you're already 10 or 15 seconds in. So it's a 40 second shot clock and they don't enforce it that strongly. I mean, Joe Posnansky wrote this great thing about the MLB uh, pitch clock that the one thing they learned from one of the minor league trials is that you've got to enforce it strictly. It's gotta be, you've got to establish this is the rule now and they didn't do it on the first try and it fell apart. And it's it's obvious why in retrospect, they don't enforce it at all. There's such a sort of gentleman's agreement between umpires Um, and players uh indirectly umpires are partly employed Mm -hmm. by the players. So if if you're if you're starting your service motion when the serve clock runs out then it's okay. If you if you hit a first serve, if you throw your toss up and let it bounce cuz it's a bad toss, ah, no <laughs> problem, that's okay. If you miss your first serve and then wait another 15 seconds before hitting your second serve, which some players um, do all the time, okay. there's no rule at all against that. So it's it's 25 seconds in name only, and 25 seconds itself is slow. So okay. I mean this was Kind of doomed to fail from the outset, even if it was hard to say that at the time.
1: Okay, all helpful. And the, the pitch clock being such a high profile element of our sports watching life this year, this summer, it's an interesting wrinkle to add to our Wimbledon watching. Tell us, Jeff, before we let you go, what's something else we should be paying attention to at Wimbledon this year? Either something to enhance our enjoyment, you know, so we're not just frustrated with the pitch clock on uh, the surf clock. Or um, something that would make us a little bit smarter, wiser consumers of tennis these days? What's one tip you have for us?
3: Wow, making you a smarter, wiser consumer of tennis. Um, I mean, I think one way tactics have changed over the years is to really raise the status and the importance of the return of serve. Um Serves come back more than they did for a while in tennis. In women's tennis, return of serves are more aggressive than they've ever been. So someone like Arena Sabalenka or Elena Rybakina, who are two of the, the the big three in women's tennis right now, they serve big. Absolutely, they're going to hit some aces, but they are absolutely swinging away sometimes on returns of serve. Even if they're mm-hmm. playing each other, even if they're facing 110 mile an hour first serves. They're swinging away. They're going for corners, and that's often where matches are won and lost. And mm. I, I haven't fully worked out the implications of all that, but it, it feels like going back to what I was saying about the perception of momentum. I mean, there may really be something there. That I mean, if if someone's serving big right in your face, and you can bash back a forehand winner at 90 miles an hour in the corner, then mm-hmm. that would give someone something to think about. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's no longer the the tennis of the nineties or the early aughts where it was just like chip it back in and hope for the best. It's, it's a tactical play in its own right. Mm-hmm. A lot of players are stepping in more, both men and women. And that's often what's defining the point more than the serve itself or more than any later tactics because points okay. don't run that long. So that second shot is really what's determining how it's going to go.
1: Is there anybody on the men's side who is especially well known for his return of serve? There have been some greats over the years who were famous for that.
3: Yeah, someone like Le- Leighton Hewitt sticks out as a, a big returner. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alcaraz is a guy to watch. Since I think a lot of a lot of casual tennis fans haven't seen a lot of Alcaraz. He hasn't played a lot on grass. But at Queens Club a couple weeks ago, he was stepping in. I mean, against big serves on a fast surface, he was standing around the baseline to return serve. And he's so quick. I mean, you think of him as a Spaniard, more like in the Nadal mode, but he's kind of in the Federer mold as well. He's just really quick, really flexible, good at improvisation. So he can stand up close and and get things back that. You wouldn't expect him to do anything with. So and I feel kind of bad for coming on a, an analytics like a dark horse kind of show and and saying, hey, go watch the number one seed. But <laughs> that's what you should watch the number one seed for.
1: Okay. That's great. No, we'll take it. We'll take it. That's that's good fun. Jeff, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you making time for us today.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Jeff Sackman, tennisabstract.com, one of the best writers and analysts you can read on tennis. Strongly encourage you to track his work down tennisabstract.com also on twitter tennisabstract and you can find his writing in various publications that has been another wharton moneyball a full hour of sports analytics here on sirius xm for the whole team adi weiner and shane jensen who have been here with me for most of the whole show eric bradlow in absentia for Matty Dats, the boss man and deon simpkins the associate boss man we appreciate y'all listening come back and join us next time between now and then Enjoy your sports.